Good morning, Sojourners Church. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. I'm looking forward to spending the rest of the service admiring God's grace with you and worshiping Christ together. My soul's already been fed a great deal this morning. So let me read our text and then we'll open with prayer. We're in First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 this morning. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You bow with me and I'll pray. Oh, our God and Father, we thank you. We come into your presence with great joy, with great trembling as we're aware of our own deficiencies, our sins and our weakness. But we take comfort that in Christ you have drawn us near, that you have redeemed us and placed us in a new kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of your dear love. And my Father, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to bless us this morning, to open our eyes to see Christ, open our hearts to love Christ, cause our wills to bow down and obey Christ. Cause our mouths to sing his praise. Renew us, refresh us, change us, and make us more into his blessed image that we may leave here this morning a little closer to the end goal, which is to be in the image of Christ forever. And I pray that you would use me now to bless these saints of yours. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1725, the year 1725, there was a man born in London. He was instructed in Christian truth and theology from a young age by his devout mother. But she died when he was six years old. And at the age of 11, he was out of school, and he went to be at sea with his father, who was a shipmaster in the Mediterranean service. After spending some time in the Royal Navy, this young man boarded a slave ship to West Africa in Sierra Leone, where he was subjected to a form of enslavement himself for a period. And of himself, this man who had once been instructed in Christian truth as a youth wrote this, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, as far as I remember, the least sensibility of conscience. That was how this man described himself. Despite his misery, he was a blasphemer and a mocker of the gospel. 
He disbelieved in the historic accounts of Christ, and he even ridiculed him. He used and despised people, and this is all recorded in his autobiography. Shortly after his escape from Sierra Leone, he was confronted by the certainty of his death off the coast of Ireland when a storm ripped apart the vessel that he was on, and he almost drowned and was at the brink of starvation for weeks. In that time, he began to pray and to seek God and ask him for mercy. He also began reading and meditating on the scriptures, but with little counsel or accountability, after he survived that near-fatal shipwreck, um, and he became entangled again in sin for a period, he went on to be the captain of several slave ships himself between 1750 and 1754. He made efforts to make those ships better after his religious awakening and improve the environments, but it never satisfied his conscience. And at the age of 30, a stroke took him off sea. This man went on to be ordained in the Church of England as an Anglican priest. He is most famous for his letters and hymns, He was in correspondence with people such as George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, and William Wilberforce, who was in Parliament in Britain and helped to abolish the slave trade. While he had, in his early life, taken part in the slave trade and not only condoned such things but profited off of them, he later wrote of slavery that it was a commerce so iniquitous, so cruel, so oppressive, so destructive. This man was John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, once captain of a slave ship, turned preacher of the gospel of the grace of God, once a self-proclaimed blasphemer. And when we look at the beginning of a man like this, who is responsible for writing the most well-known hymn sung in the English language, It shows us something, that God's work in his redeemed people is done to draw attention to something. God changes the position of his people, not just John Newton, but all of us. He changes our position so that we will proclaim his excellence, that we will tell about his virtues, his goodness, his love, his mercy, That's precisely why God did that for John Newton. This man, for years later, would write, trying to fathom, why would God look at me in the pool of my sin and my blood and say, live? It was unfathomable to him. But all he could figure out was that it was for the sake of God, so that his greatness would be on display. And listen to this quotation from a letter that Newton penned to one of his many correspondents. What a fountain of life and joy and praise is here, that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, should vouchsafe to be our Father, our God, that he who is the source of all mercy and consolation should direct the stream of his fullness to flow into our souls, that when we were dead in sins, he should look upon us and bid us live, that when we were sunk 
into the depths of despair. He should send his word and raise us up to a lively hope that he should give us such a bright prospect and such a sweet foretaste of the exceeding riches of his glory. Oh, who can say which is the most wonderful part of this wonderful subject? That he should provide such a happiness for such hell-deserving wretches and that he should commend his great and undeserved love to us in such a wonderful way as to give us his own and his only son to be born, be buffeted, and crucified for us, for you. Alas, alas, for our stupidity that we can write or speak or sing of these things with so little feeling, affection, and fruitfulness. Oh, that the power of God would set my heart and pen at liberty while writing and fill your heart while reading, that we may rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's an excellent quote. And we may not be as eloquent in our writing or grammar or communication as John Newton was, but brothers and sisters, we are all positioned in this life as Christians by God to tell forth the same essential truths, both in our words, as Newton did in his letters and hymns, and in our lives, as he did, as he served the church and worked to abolish slavery and helped many people along the way. To let the gravity of all this sink in, though, that God changes our position so that he would put us in a place to tell forth and speak about how great he is and show it in our lives, we have to first consider what our position was before coming to God. And I've selected a portion of scripture uh, to to remind us of where we were when God found us. Could have chosen many, but I selected Titus in chapter 3 and verse 3. And this is Paul's description of the church that he was writing to. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. When you think about yourself, do you really realize what you were before God found you? Is it apparent to you that as far as it concerned a true and saving knowledge of God, you were foolish? You were ignorant to the light and truth of God? You could have studied all your life, and you never would have been able to see it for what it was. You disobeyed God. You took his laws and you cast them behind your back to live for your own pleasure. You were led astray. You didn't listen to the truth of his word. You followed your own insights, your own ideas. And like me, you were all at some point enslaved to your own desires, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind like the rest of mankind. We know this well enough, I hope. Those whom we should have loved, we hated. Those whom we should have forgiven, 
We held grudges against family, friends, spouses. This is mankind. This isn't just politicians. This isn't just hardened criminals. This is human nature. This is who we were when God found us. And then from eternity, the Father sent the Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to bear the punishment that such hateful, ignorant, rebellious people as us deserved. Christ came into the world prepared to let his body be broken and to go to the cross to bear the weight and the guilt of our sin so that God's wrath could be poured out and that our debt could be paid. And when he rose from the dead, he guaranteed that righteousness can be given to us through faith, that our debt can be canceled and we can be reconciled to God. And all of that he does for those who put their trust in Christ. And so our position was foolish, ignorant, dead in sin, hateful. But Peter wants his readers to understand something. That is no longer where you are. As soon as you've come into the faith and you've come to Christ, you're in a new position. That's not you anymore. You have union with Christ. There's a new sphere of existence that you now belong to. And Peter spells this out in three statements. Number one, a chosen race in verse 9. And when you think about it, this is where Peter should start. You are chosen in love. God predestined you to belong to himself. He called you and looked at you. And he wasn't looking down the corridors of time and seeing all your aptitudes and your insights and your giftings and your talents. That's not what he was looking for. He looked at you and in his own mysterious, sovereign, free love, he chose you to belong to him. Not because of how great and mighty you were, but he chose you in your sin. He chose us in our fallenness, in our brokenness, in our pride, our perversions, all of our iniquities. Jesus said this clearly in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 16, speaking to his own beloved disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that's what Peter's telling these Christians. God has taken you and chosen you. He wanted you. He loved you. He called you. He sent his son for you. He punished your sins on another. He raised him up so that you could live eternal life with him in a new creation. He chose you for this. That's who you are this morning, if you're a Christian. You're chosen of God. Secondly, we are a royal priesthood. The, there's just no way that I could do justice to the imagery and the importance of this statement. But there is two things that I want to point out about this. That we are chosen by God and taken out of that position of our deadness and our 
ignorance of God and our hostility to God and placed in a position of being a kingdom of priests. And that is that we are, first of all, given access to God. As Tyler was reminding us, we were alienated from him at one time. We didn't know him. He was foreign to us. Think about yourself and your life. Why should you have known God? We were without him in the world. We were darkened. Our minds were foolish. But he has given us access. When Christ came, he offered his body on the altar of the cross. Once and for all, to put away sins. And to remove the separation that stood between a fallen humanity and a righteous and holy God. And this he did by bearing the weight of our sins in his own body. And so you now have access to God. You're not in the outer courts of the temple. You don't just get to look inside the entrance of the tent of meeting. You, by grace, right now this morning, as you sing and as you pray, have entered into the Holy of Holies, into which the high priest was only permitted to go once a year, and not without an offering of sin, not without the blood of an animal. But you now are given access to God at all times. You can come boldly to the throne of grace on your way home from worship this morning. Tomorrow, as you begin your day, you are given access to your king. You are a royal priesthood, and you are also consecrated. You are consecrated for service to God. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and undoubtedly there would have been some Jews reading this letter that he was receiving. And as he was using this imagery of priest, they would have thought of the consecration of Aaron and his sons, how they were to wash with water before they entered the service, and the undergarments that covered their nakedness, and the royal robe that was to be placed upon them, made of finely twined gold and blue and scarlet yarns, and the ephod that was attached with the twelve precious stones set in its chest, each one bearing a name of the tribes of Israel, And the turban that was to be placed on their head with a solid gold plate that said, Holy to the Lord. When you think about your priesthood as a believer, do you think of yourself standing there, not having been washed with earthly water, but with the Holy Spirit? Not anointed with just oil, but the Spirit of God himself. Not bearing earthly garments of skillful workmanship, but clothed in the righteousness of your Savior, in his perfect life, his miracles, his obedience and love to his Father, his compassion for sinners. That is your clothing as God has consecrated you and made you to exist in a sphere of life where you are there to serve him. You're clothed. And in in a more real way than Aaron and his sons bore that plate that said, Holy to the Lord, you as a Christian bear that statement upon your life. You are chosen as a priesthood and consecrated. And let me ask you, do you pray 
aware of this reality? Do you pray for the nations that they would not be turned into hell, but would come to worship Christ? Do you pray for your family who lies in the shadow of darkness, that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ would shine upon them as it has upon you? Do you pray against those besetting sins that entangle you and try to pull your life down and ruin your testimony and ruin your family? Do you pray that the Spirit would help you mortify those deeds? This is your position. You, you can pray. You have access to God. Imagine one of Aaron or his sons living in their priestly duties without prayer. I realize we all fall short in this area, but don't be discouraged. Don't give up faith and hope. Our life, our transformation is from one degree to the next. Do you need to be reminded to pray, to take your priesthood seriously? Let God stir your heart this morning. And the third statement that Peter used to describe our position is a holy nation and a people for his own possession. And this is reciting in a different way Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is Peter saying what God was doing with Israel and what it seemed like wasn't going to happen because of their continuous idolatry and failure and sin. He has done. He's done it. He has made a people holy. And it's not going to be through continual offering of sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, high priest after high priest, dying, failing, king after king leading the nation into idolatry and sin. There has come a king and a priest who has unified himself with his people by the Spirit of God. And now they are holy. They exist in a new reality and they will never be cast out from his presence. And think of it. God has chosen you as his own possession to belong to him. You belong to God. He loves you and he purchased you with his own life. It's incredible. So we've seen these things. Our position. Chosen by God. Made priests after the image of that great high priest who is also the sovereign Lord of all things. But why does God do all of this? I mentioned it at the beginning, but let's remind ourselves. God has redeemed us from our fallen position to recreate us in his image. Anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. He has saved us so that we might proclaim or tell forth or show forth him, his virtues, his glory, his power, his goodness. John Kelvin, commenting on verse 9, put it in this way. The sum of what he says is that God has favored us with these immense benefits and constantly manifests them that his glory might by us be made known. Did you get that? He does this. He gives us these benefits 
and continues to manifest them in your life so that you will make known his glory. He goes on to say, For by praises or virtues, he understands wisdom, goodness, power, righteousness, and everything else in which the glory of God shines forth. And further, it behoves us to declare these virtues or excellencies not only by our tongue, but also by our whole life. Not just in speech, but in word also. So how are we, how are we, how are you and I, in the context of our own lives, practically to carry out proclaiming that God is great and precious? How are we actually going to do this, to tell that God is worthy beyond all things? There's at least five ways. There's five ways is not the extent of it, but in the, in the book of 1 Peter, I've selected five practical ways that we can carry this out. And I'll go through them a little more briefly than I've gone through the first three points. Number one, this comes from chapter one, verses six through eight. We endure our fiery test of our faith joyfully. We endure the fiery test joyfully. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. In the midst of all the confusing circumstances, the perplexing situations, where you look at a situation and you can't understand, why would this be? In the life of a Christian, in the family of those who have been called to belong to God, why would this occur? Or why would God choose this for my life? When you look at those tests of your faith, when God's refining you, and you continue to proclaim his faithfulness, and you say, I will trust the Lord, and I have devoted myself to the Lord, and I know whom I have believed, and I know that he's going to hold me to the end. Our endurance of trials for the sake of our union with Christ and our faith in Christ shows that he is worthy beyond all earthly comforts. Whatever he strips away, whatever he withholds, whatever contentment you lack because of your life circumstances, Jesus is still worthy. Number two, put away sinful behaviors. This is in chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This is a summary as we find other places in the scriptures of the errors and the sins that arise from human life. And we're all guilty of these things. That word malice is just a word to summarize the evil and the wrong things that come out of a heart that's not in the right place. We've all been malicious. 
We've all been offended by a brother or sister, whether in your own family or in the church or somebody in the workplace. And rather than forgiving them and being kind to them, we've torn them down. We've maligned them. We've slandered their reputation because they hurt us. We do it to our own spouses. But Peter tells us that as a chosen, priestly, holy people, we can magnify and show the worth of God when we put that behavior away. Our rejection of the sin that corrupts God's image in us and brings a bad reputation on his gospel shows that his beauty and worth is more than our sinful passions. The pleasure to be found in fellowship with God and obedience to God is worth more than the pleasure that comes from sin. Number three, live submissively. This is found in chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. I'll just read the first two verses. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Peter tells his audience that part of their priestly duty as God's chosen beloved people is to respect the established authorities on earth. It doesn't mean that they get a blank check to make you obey every ordinance when it opposes God's will or opposes his word. But insofar as what they're asking of you doesn't cause you to sin against God, submit to them, be subject to them, be ready to serve them, to honor them, and to respect their authority. They've not been placed there ultimately by the devil, for God is the ruler of all things. Even a worldly system that's dark is under his authority. We'll move on to number four. Honor your familial roles. Honor the roles that you have been placed in in your families. This comes from chapter three, verses one through seven. And I'll skim through it a little bit. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their, your respectful and pure conduct. And then we'll go down to verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And certainly these, there's things that apply to the relation of a child to their parent, uh, to grandparents, aunts, uncles. But these roles, these most intimate roles of husband and wife, honor those. Honor them. Wives, respect your husband. He has his flaws. He has his weaknesses. He has his unique temptations. His leadership is not always as courageous 
or with done with as much conviction as you probably wish. He's not always as strong as you'd like him to be. But he is the head that God has placed over you to care for you and to bless you. And husbands, you can proclaim the worth of Jesus Christ by seeking to understand and honor your wives. Don't begrudge her weaknesses as an inconvenience to you. But you should delight to shoulder her burdens. Think of Christ. He willingly went to the cross to bear a burden not his own. A burden that was shameful. A burden that was not convenient. But he took it. And in all of his manliness and his glory, he carried his wife's weakness up to the cross. He saw her imperfections. He saw her weakness and her shame. And he went and he loved her. He loved his bride. And the husband can proclaim the excellence of such things as this when he does likewise for his wife. Finally, we'll move to the fifth application. This is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. And then chapter 4, verse 19. Suffer while blessing and trusting. In 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then in chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You are not going to escape sufferings in this life. In fact, the opposite is true. You've been saved into a hostile environment. And Paul told his early disciples that through many trials we must enter the kingdom. And all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But in all of your sufferings, you have the unique opportunity to magnify and display the mercies of Jesus Christ on his enemies and the trust that he had for his father. We tell forth the value of a suffering savior who blessed those who cursed him when we follow his example and bless those who curse us. When Jesus was reviled, he did not return an insult. He went silent to the slaughter as a lamb before the shears. The times he did open his mouth, it was to plead for mercy to his mocking, for his mocking onlookers, and to invite the thief into his eternal light. And we also display the greatness of God's power and his holiness in being over and above all created things when we entrust our lives to him in the midst of suffering and remain steadfast in the faith. We realize that God's righteous reign over his creation 
ensures that every account will be settled in the end. Make no mistake about it. Every evil action will receive a just retribution. And every wrong done to us, to you, who are God's children, will receive eternal comfort and healing at the tree of life. When we endure suffering at the hands of a hostile world without sliding into bitterness, hatred, or revenge, we prove that our trust is in the Lord and he upholds our fainting spirits. Our life is hidden in one who is an anchor and who is our rest and our fortress. And so, my friends, I hope and pray that you will walk out of the service this morning with a weightier sense of these things than you walked in with. I pray that the Holy Spirit will apply all of this to you by faith in a unique way so that you will recognize that God has chosen you in his love freely and sovereignly. That that is why you now belong to his redeemed people. Think upon the fact that you have been given free access to God and can approach his throne even now. Think that you are even now wearing your priestly garments, that the Spirit himself has washed you, anointed you, consecrated you, and set you apart by the blood of Christ, and your head bears that title, Holy to the Lord. Meditate on the comforting reality that God looked upon you with all of your corruption, all of your sin. And he declared that you would be his own possession. And he has made you pure and different from the cursed world you live in. And he has fit you to belong to himself for all of eternity. You belong to the Lord, that one who we read about that's high and lifted up the train of whose robe filled the temple, the sound of whose voice shook the pillars. He owns you as his own family. And as you ponder these things, let it stir you up to love and good works. I think that I've gone for long enough. Let me close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father and our God, We thank you so very much that you chose us. Despite all the weakness, the sin, the pride, the unbelief that even now clouds our view and vision of you, you chose us. Thank you for making us holy. Thank you for consecrating us and setting us apart to offer spiritual sacrifices to you. Would you give us strength by the Holy Spirit to do that this week? To pray more earnestly? To have more love to Christ in our hearts? Would you help us to live out the practical applications of this in the various spheres that you've called us to exist in? Our family, our society, our church, in the midst of trials and suffering? Would you bless us, Father? And would you, by this, show how excellent and bright and good you are? 
even show it to us now by the Holy Spirit through the word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.